0: I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 1. I'm going to begin by reading from Acts 1, verse... uh, I'm going to start reading in verse 12 and read through the end of the chapter. Acts 1, verses 12 through 26 is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. Um, Of course, you'll find the book of Acts after the four Gospels in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. And then if you're in the letters of Paul, you're gone too far. So if you're in Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, go left. If you're in the Gospels, go right in Acts 1. And we're going to read here this section of verses that describe what happened uh, between the time that Jesus ascended and the uh, day of Pentecost, which begins in Acts chapter 2. So this is a 10-day period of time. Uh, There was the uh, resurrection 40 days later, the ascension. Then this 10-day period of time before on the 50th day, Pentecost. And here's what the church was doing during that time. Acts 1 verse 12, then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scriptures had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. Luke explains what happened to Judas. Uh, With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. Peter continues for said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted and let there be no one to dwell in it and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us for one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominated two men. Joseph called Sabbath, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the eleven apostles. If you like uh, debates, you might enjoy a radio show that NPR hosts. It's called Intelligence Squared. And it's a debate program based on a a practice uh, in uh, Great Britain, in uh, universities in in Great Britain. Uh, what happens in the Intelligence Squared is the, the producers of the show pick a topic and they pick some experts in the topic and they ask these experts to come and argue a statement about this topic. They have uh, discussed in the years I've been listening, they've discussed uh, religion, politics, economics, racial matters, all kinds of things. Um, recently they debated the issue of whether or not millennials... That is, those that belong to the millennial generation. Um, you, you know, all this talk of the, the generations, the greatest generation, the boomers, the Gen Xers, the millennials. Millennials are those who are born uh, between were born between 1980 and 2000, roughly. Well, the debate was whether or not millennials stand a chance in the world that they have inherited from the generations that came before them. Um, They were arguing over whether or not uh, millennials could survive if if they could had positive prospects for life in this world that they have inherited. Now, those who were saying that millennials don't have a chance were uh, pointing out things like the condition of the economy. This is a generation that graduated from college when the economy was uh, in the pits, and so there's no jobs. And they talked about how uh, the student loan debt has grown so much. They talked about the exhaustion in the nation due to uh, the constant stream of warfare that we have been involved in. Uh, they said, uh, you won't like this, they said that uh, 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 millennials have been coddled by their parents and told that uh, ever since they were little children that they're special and they deserve a trophy so that they were entering life narcissistic and narcissistic people don't survive. Then they argued that millennials, in part because of their absorption in technology, are socially disadvantaged and they have unhealthy views of what it means to have real relationships with other people. That was an argument they made. Well, those opposing them immediately said, That is not true. I have hundreds of friends. That's what Facebook is for. Well, they didn't say just that. Um, Actually, they said that technology helps them form and keep and maintain relationships in ways that were were never imagined before. You can tweet, text, message, email, and if you have to, talk to anyone in the world at any time. You can uh, sustain and grow and nurture friendships with a lot of people at once, and technology helps. Now, I'm not enough of an expert to argue how technology helps or hinders friendships. I, I think it is awesome to be able to write a message to someone in Germany and get a response in 30 minutes. I mean, that is just, just amazing. Well, That's if they're not on their computer. It takes less time if they're actually sitting at their using their phone. I think that's great. Huh. I also, though, drive through Millersville and watch college students who are walking on the sidewalks like this. It's an interesting debate. I'm not an expert in the issue. I want to add a new viewpoint to the discussion. It's one that arises early in these verses in the book of Acts. This is the first description of church life in the book of Acts, and it is a picture of these followers of Jesus Christ together with one another. I know they didn't have the option to Skype into their meetings. I understand that. But there's something going on in this passage that I think we should notice. This is what the first followers of Jesus Christ did. They met together. And they focused on two different activities in particular. Prayer and applying the Bible to their lives and to their mission. This is a theme that continues all the way through the book of Acts. We find the church together at prayer and seeking to apply the Bible to their lives and their mission. Now, if John Stott is right and the book of Acts is supposed to be like a mirror in which we see our own strengths and our own weaknesses, this chapter and these twin priorities that we're going to see over and over and over again should receive our very careful attention. We ask ourselves, how much does our church life, how much does grace conform to this description in Acts chapter 1? And are we moving toward it or are we moving away from it? We're going to spend two weeks looking at this first section, Lord willing. And this morning, we're going to focus on praying together. We're going to focus today on this prayer, and I have one simple summary statement for you to consider as we think about this, this, these verses. Here it is When God moves, He first calls His people to prayer. When God moves, He first calls His people to prayer. This is the first prayer meeting in the book of Acts, but all the way through at major turning points, God's people pray. Let me, let me survey that with you if I can. Can I just show you a few of these verses? Here it happens, they gather to pray before the Spirit comes. Then, uh, well, I already read from 1 verse 24, where it talks, they prayed before they replaced Judas on the apostolic team. Uh, then flip over with me to Acts 8 verse 15. Acts 8, verse 15. They're taking the gospel to Samaria, and the Holy Spirit has not yet come on them. But look at verse 15, what it says in chapter 8. When they arrived, Peter and John, they prayed for the new believers that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not come on them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. This is the gospel in full force going outside of the Jewish nation into the Samaritans. And it happened after prayer. Then look at Acts 9, 11, and 12. The Lord here is speaking to Ananias, who is a follower of Christ. The Lord said to Ananias, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. How does the greatest missionary in the history of the world, how does he enter into his ministry? He does it in prayer. Saul is praying, God's going to work. Now, Acts chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, the next chapter over. At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need, and he prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, which is prayer time, one day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctively saw an angel who came to him and said, Cornelius, Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord, he asked. And the angel tells him, well, I'll just read it. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering to God. Now send men to Joppa and bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. And here the gospel enters. It leaves Jewish Jerusalem. It's gone to Samaria. Now it's entering the Gentile world. How? Through prayer. Well, look at chapter 10, verse 9. Simon is uh, praying about noon. The following day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. And while he's praying, God speaks to him and says, Go to Cornelius. One more, Acts chapter 13 Acts chapter 13, verse 1. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and set them off. At every major turning point in the book of Acts, when the gospel invades a new people group, uh, when, when God sends His missionaries out, they, we find the church praying. You almost get the impression from these passages in the book of Acts that if you want to follow God faithfully, you have to meet with other brothers and sisters to pray. You'd almost get that impression. Hmm. God works through praying people. When God moves, He first calls His people to pray. Now, what I want to do, Acts 1, I want to go back to Acts 1, and that's the beginning of this pattern, and I want to show you from verse 14 in particular, three characteristics of prayer, three things that marked the prayer life of this praying church. Uh, First of all, it is fueled by God's promises, it's fueled by God's promises, it's an observation from the context. There's not a specific word in verse 14, like I'll show you in a few minutes. Uh, but uh, Jesus has told them that the Spirit is coming. That's the promise. And He's promised them and told them to wait for the Spirit to come. And they gather to pray. What are they praying about here? What are they praying for? I think they're praying in anticipation and in welcome of the gift that the Lord Jesus has promised. They're praying, oh Lord, fulfill your promise, send us the Holy Spirit. We want to be a part of, of uh, this mission that Jesus has called us to, to witness about him to the world, and we we desire to have the power to do that. So please, Lord, send the Spirit that you have promised. Now, I wonder if you find that strange. You should. You should think about it for a minute and find that strange that people would be praying for something that God has promised. Does this sound odd? Are they nagging God? Sometimes, doesn't that happen you, you, in your house? You make a promise, you say something you're going to do, and people ask and ask and ask and ask over again, and you say, Leave me. okay, I said I was going to do it. I will do it, all right? Is God in heaven going, I know, I said I would do it, I'm going to do it, all right? Is that What's happening here? I don't think so. What we see here actually is a tension in this text um, that, that's all the way through the, the book of Acts, and it comes up in, in several different places. Uh, let me actually raise this tension by asking this question here. Why did the Spirit come? In Acts chapter 2, we'll get to that in a few weeks. Why did the Spirit come? Was it because Jesus promised to send the Spirit or because the early believers prayed that God would send the Spirit? The answer to that question is yes. Okay? Well, let's talk about another one here. Another example in the chapter. We read it, this story of Judas. Oh, Judas. Why did Judas betray Jesus? Is it because it was one of the long-standing plans of God? Or was it because of Judas' treachery and wickedness? And the answer to that question is yes. This is what the Bible says. God's word has to be fulfilled. And then in verse 18, the payment he received for his wickedness. Here's a better example. Not a better example, Mark. Well, look at it. Acts 4. Acts 4. I love this example. It's a great verse in the book of Acts. Acts 4, verse 27. The believers are praying together. Oh, there's a theme again. Verse 27. They're praying to God and they say, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Verse 28. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Why did the Lord Jesus die on the cross? Did the Lord Jesus die because God, in before the foundation of the world, had according to His purposes and will decide that it should happen, or did the Lord Jesus die on the cross because Herod and Pontius Pilate uh, conspired against Him? And the answer to the question is yes. There is in the Book of Acts here this tension, this mystery. Uh, one of the first signs, think about this, the first sign that God is at work is that He calls His people to pray. So God works, we pray, God answers. Does God do things because He wills us to pray or because He wills them to be done? Yes. Yes. See, uh, promises the promises of God fuel the prayer of His people. Does that confuse you? It should a little bit. Acts wants you to hold in tension these two great works, the sovereign foreordination of God and the faithful response of God's people. Both of those things are necessary. What we actually see here uh, in the lives of these men and women in Acts chapter 1 is something that may be happening in your life, Right now, every Sunday, we have people visit our church, people that that we don't recognize, we don't know, we've never seen before. They come for a variety of reasons, and we're always glad to welcome them in. Now, I don't know, if you're you're visiting here with us this morning, I don't know how you think about a personal relationship with God, how you you stand before Him, or even if you you think uh, uh, having a relationship with God is possible or valuable or attractive, but I, I know that the Bible says that God desires to be reconciled with those He has made. Your relationship with God, whatever it is, is not what it's supposed to be. God made human beings as His image bearers, and He made us to know Him and to love Him and to obey Him and to center our lives around Him. But our consistent pattern, the Bible tells us as human beings, all of us, is one of rebellion, not obedience. It's a pattern of idolatry, not worship. Rejection, not love. The Bible says we fall short of God's perfect design for us. And we've broken this world that God has made. God has made it possible for us to be reconciled with Him. He desires to be reconciled with us. You've seen a sign. I'm sure you've seen a sign in a store that says, you break it, you buy it. You've seen signs like that before. There's a there's a penalty to be paid for carelessness with the merchandise. You owe the owner for what you have destroyed. We owe a penalty for our sin, and the wages of sin the Bible tells us is death. We deserve to die physically and eternally because of our rebellion against God, but he sent his son. He sent his son, Jesus Christ. He lived this perfect life. He died the death that we deserve to die. He paid the penalty we owe uh, on the cross. And He rose again. He ascended on high. He's at His Father's right hand. He offers life and forgiveness to all who will receive it by faith, who will turn to Him and trust in Him. This is God's reconciliation plan. It's, It's God's great design that you know this good news and that you hear this good news and that you be reconciled to Him. And and you probably didn't think about it, but God has been at work to ensure that you would hear that message this morning. He orchestrated events so that this church is here. And He gave you a friend to invite you to come. (laughs) Maybe that friend nagged you so much, here you are. But who put that friend in your life? God did. Or maybe He gave you the parents that you have, knowing that they would force you to be here so that you could hear this message. And the question remains, what are you going to do about it? Hmm. If you become a follower of Jesus Christ today, is it because God has orchestrated thousands of circumstances so that you can hear this message this morning? Or is it because you will turn to Him and trust in Him? And the answer to that question is yes. He is both more merciful and more powerful than you can ever imagine. And by your presence here, whether you came with a friend or you you just saw the the church here and decided to come, uh, whether or not you were forced to be here, (laughs) the question is, he has given you the opportunity to respond. How are you going to respond? Now, let me move back to this story a little bit, and I want to think more about the relationship between God's promises and prayer. If promises fuel prayer, how does that work? God's promises fuel prayer by revealing His character, and the revelation of His character invites our dependence on Him. I'll say that again. God's promises reveal God's character, and the revelation of God's character inspires our dependence upon Him. Now, I'm going to confess something to you about myself. I want to tell you um, about my bad parenting techniques this morning. Um, these are not Paul Tripp-approved techniques. All right? First, um, you should know I occasionally bribe my children with dessert. All right. Um, I say things like this. You may have a cookie for dessert if you eat your dinner. And what's the next question that comes out of my children's mouth? All of it? So they want to know to the microgram how much they have to actually eat. So um, I usually take what I have on their plate, I divide it in half and say, one half pick, you pick. You've got to eat the whole thing. Uh, then sometimes what happens when they express their resolve to eat this, uh, this, is, this is confession number two, not only do I bribe them to eat dessert, sometimes I join in the chanting at our house. Um, I, chanting is usually forbidden at our house. Occasionally, though, it happens at our dinner table. This is the, this is the this is how this works at our house. Dad says, "You may have a dessert. You may have cookie if you eat your dinner. How much? Well, I divide the food, and and the resolution will come. I am going to eat this half, so I might have dessert. And somebody starts it around the table. Do it! Do it! Do it! Do it! Or Eat it, eat it, eat We don't do this when my wife is at home. Can I just say this? Okay, this is like only dad rules, all right? Just saying. The child, one of the children has made a resolution. I'm going to eat this food. And the rest of us join in 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 glad, cheerful encouragement. Do it, do it, do it. Right? You've stated your intentions, and now we're cheering for you to, to, to fulfill it. There is a sense in which the church is praying based on God's stated intentions is a form of, and I know Jesus told us not to use mindless repetition, and you're not supposed to pray like you're in second grade. Understand that. But but there's there's a way in which we are saying to God, this is what you have said now, Lord, do it, do it, do it. I can show you this. It's in the Bible. Okay, look at Revelation 22.20. It says, it's written on that sheet, right? Does it say, uh, it, it quotes Jesus as saying, yes, I am coming soon. It's nearly the last verse of the Bible. I am coming soon. And what does John write in the next line? Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Do it. Do it. Do it. Do what you say. Your promises reveal your character and this invites my my dependence upon you. So do what you say. Oh Lord, you have said that you never leave us nor forsake us and I am so lonely right now. Would you remind me of your presence? Oh Lord, you have said that you meet all of our needs through Jesus Christ and I I have bills to pay and I have responsibilities. I don't know how I'm going to meet them. Oh Lord, you you said, you promised that no temptation takes us, but such is common to man, and you provide a way out for us so that we can stand up under the temptation. Oh Lord, do what you said. God's promises reveal his character, and his character invites our dependent trust. Prayer is fueled by promises. Here's, here's quality number two. We're going to spend a little bit less time here. Um, the quality number two of their prayer life. Their prayer is a persevering. It's persevering. The text says in, in Acts one fourteen, they all joined together constantly in prayer. Constantly in prayer. They were devoted to it. it. It consumed their time together. It was what they did when they gathered together. It was not everything they did together, but it was it was always a part of their meetings. They didn't quit praying. We see her part of the reason why prayer plays the role that it does in our meetings on Sunday. We always spend a good bit of time in prayer. In fact, we should probably spend more time in prayer on Sunday mornings when we gather together. Uh, we have meetings that are devoted to prayer in our church. Uh, this is why prayer is always a part of your growth group meetings. We we want to persevere in prayer. I wonder if this is if this standard is if you're looking in the mirror of Acts chapter one verse fourteen, persevering in prayer. I wonder what you see when you see your reflection, whether or not you you've quit. I'm not asking this question to pile on guilt. Um, this is something that I think we have to remind ourselves of. Often we renew ourselves in this commitment. And we give ourselves over to it again and again and again. This is something that we do. You get off track with your diet and you start again. You um, uh, get off of your budget, you you start your financial situation again. You get off your exercise plan, you move back to it. You wander away from our persevering call to prayer, and it, so you renew yourself again. A few years ago somebody said to me um, at a prayer meeting, he said, to be honest with you, I almost never want to come to prayer meeting. I understood exactly what he was saying. You get home from work and you got to change or you got to um, eat dinner and it's a rush and a hassle and, and you just want to be home because you haven't seen your family all day and here you are. <sighs> he said, I almost never want to come to prayer meeting and i almost never sorry that I came. I confess my parenting woes to you this morning. Here's another of my woes. I struggle to pray, persevere, in praying regularly with my wife. I'm a paid spiritual professional. This is supposed to come easy for me. Uh, Most of the time, it's just easier to keep reading my book or watching a show or going to sleep. Sometimes... Um, sometimes I've been such a grouch during the day and impatient and uh, uh, selfish that praying with her just seems hypocritical. This I've got to be the last person on earth this dear woman would want to pray with. There's a man in our church who, who does this really well. I won't tell you his name because he's a gracious person. He'd be embarrassed. I learned about his prayer life at home a few years ago. Um, I learned about it from his wife and his kids. Um, several years ago, uh, I was teaching a class of young adults um, many many years ago uh, they 're all like retired now it was so many years ago and I was teaching this group of young adults. And uh, we were talking about marriage, so I invited this couple and another, uh, a couple other couples, to come to the class and and speak about their marriages. I wanted some some people with experience to talk about their experience of following Christ together in front of this class. So um, I asked the questions. I, I asked uh, this this couple. So how do you handle conflict? What does conflict look like in your house? And uh, this man's wife said, "We pray about everything." My husband leads us through conflict uh leads us in conflict through prayer. She said When we were first married, we were disagreeing. It wasn't a huge fight, but we were disagreeing about how to handle a toothpaste tube so that the toothpaste is used most efficiently inside it. All right. Um We were talking about this and we were arguing and and he stopped and he said, I think we should pray about this right now. And she said, he took my hand and we started praying about the toothpaste tube. She described it with this tone of grateful incredulity. Can you believe how awesome it is that I married a man who prays about something stupid like toothpaste? This is awesome. Isn't that great? It's crazy great. A bit later I did some uh, premarital counseling for his daughter. She told me the same thing about how things work when they're at their house. Father leads them in persevering prayer. We keep at it. We keep at it at home. We keep at it at church. We start again and we start again and we start again when we get off track. Now, here here briefly is a third characteristic of prayer. It is unified, unified. Their prayer was unified. Verse 14 says, They all joined together constantly in prayer. This word together is a favorite of Luke's. Luke uses this word all the time, ten times, mostly to describe the group of early Christians. Now, just before that, in verse 14, he had described these groups. Why did he go through these names that we looked at in verse 13? I think part of the reason is that early on in the church there were these three identifiable groups. Uh, There was the disciples, there was uh, the women who were followers, and then there was Jesus' family. Uh, when his, after the resurrection, his brothers became followers of his, and they were identifiable group. And, and Luke is including these, all three of these groups here, and he says they were together. They were united. They, they may be separate identifiable groups, but they were together. They were unified with one another. You know, this theme of unity in the book of Acts doesn't mean that there was no conflict. There's a good deal of conflict in the book of Acts. But they were united together on their mission to serve as witnesses for Jesus. Even even in the most divisive conflict in the whole book of Acts, it doesn't turn these early followers away from their commitment to the Lord and to His work, their mission. I have written down there on that sheet of paper a a paragraph in the book of Acts 15. Uh, Book of Acts chapter 15. It's the most confusing to me, confounding conflict in the book of Acts. I'm not sure what to do with it. I've got several months to figure it out. But look at what this paragraph says. Sometime later, this is later when they're doing their mission work, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the words of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it was wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia strengthening the churches. This is an unresolved conflict here, right? They solved the problem by splitting up. It's just strange, it's just stunning to me. Wouldn't you think these early followers of Christ, the Apostle Paul, they should have been able to work this out, right? He's more spiritual than I am, and look at this. Notice that they were of one mind, not about what to do with John, but they were of one mind about what they were supposed to be doing. Even in the midst of a split, they, were keep going, they kept going on the mission, because that's what they were supposed to do. This split, this disagreement that they had was not a sign to them that God had abandoned them. It was not a sign that they weren't genuinely supposed to preach about Jesus. This is not a sign to them that they were not qualified to be witnesses of Jesus Christ. They had a common mission and they were unified in that common mission. When God moves, He first calls His people to prayer. Prayer. This is our desire in our church, isn't it? We want to see God at work. We want to be more and more like this church in Acts in their boldness and their vision and their passion for Jesus Christ. I want to suggest to you just one, one brief way that maybe you could embrace this vision. Would it be possible for you to rearrange your schedule, your life, so that you could meet with one or two people from our church once a week to pray? Maybe it will be at one of our prayer meetings. Maybe you, maybe you could do it over your lunch hour or early in the morning. Maybe you could meet in your car at a, at a parking lot near where you both work. You huh. shouldn't, shouldn't say this. Make sure that your prayer partner is another man or another woman. Okay, don't be foolish about this. don't right? just say that. You could come to church. Um, you could meet for 20 minutes and pray with one other person. Um. It, it might be awkward approaching somebody about this. Just go ahead and do it. Say, hey, look, I, I want to meet with somebody for prayer. Will you, will you meet with me once a week or once every two weeks? Could we, could we work this into our schedule that we're going to pray together? Pray for the, the prayer requests and the list that you receive. Or um, actually, let me suggest, I'm going to finish by suggesting three things to pray for concerning our church because we're going to be on mission, like Acts 1 says. So three things. Paul prayed this way. Pray, first of all, for opportunity. Pray for opportunity. This is what Paul asked people to pray for. Pray for open doors, opportunities to share the gospel with other people. You pray with someone in your daily work that God would give you opportunities to talk to somebody about Jesus Christ. Now, actually, that happens. Number two, you've got to pray for boldness. <laughs> boldness. God give me an opportunity today to talk to somebody about Jesus Christ and give me the courage to actually do it. Pray, number three, for strategy. Pray for our church's strategy, that we be more strategic, more effective, more focused on this mission. So verse 14 is a mirror. I wonder how you think you fare looking in it. This is what we think we should look like. We should, we want to look like this. How do we actually look? Do you need more motivation to embrace this? I only have one more thing to say to you this morning about that. Do it, do it, do it. Let's pray, shall we? Oh, Father God, we come before you this morning with great joy because you are a God who makes to us tremendous promises. They are great and precious promises, as Peter said. You have given us great promises to sustain us in the midst of this great mission to which you have called us, the task of witnessing for the Lord Jesus. Father, would you, by your promises, fuel our dependence upon you? Uh, Sometimes you you place us in difficult situations. Would you, by your grace, enable us to, to cry out to you? Uh, Father, I, I thank you for these men and women. There are many in this church who pray faithfully and diligently. Would you, would you strengthen us, Father, so that uh, um, we might see you ever more at work in our church? Because when you move, you call us to, to pray. Change us, God. We, we desire that our reputation would be not for our cleverness, and not for our opulence, and not for our relevance. We desire, though, Lord, to have a reputation for our dependence on you. As a praying people, do that work in us, we ask, according to your kindness. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things together, saying, Amen.